research group, they recently released a book called Good Faith. And the subtitle of this book is Being Christian When Society Thinks That You Are Irrelevant and Extreme. Right? Those are two caricatures that if you are interacting with people that are outside the Christian faith tradition, they would believe that Christians are either irrelevant or extreme. And um, I'm not like a bad news stats guy, but these kind of jumped off the page to me. I, and the reason that I'm going to bring our attention to these stats is because I think it presents a very unique opportunity for us as the people of God to model something markedly different and something markedly better. Um, in this book, their research says that between 42 and 46 percent of Americans think that people of faith and people that take place uh, take part in religious activities are part of the problem. That's a staggering number, right? And if you're interacting with anyone that doesn't consider themselves a Christian, I think that's probably true. But this next one, I think, is even more startling to me. It says. Almost three in five adults who claim no religious affiliation believe that most of the charitable work in the world would go on if the church ceased to exist, right? So anything that we're talking about, responding to to natural disasters, caring for the poor, hospitals. Now, what's even more staggering than that, 17% of Christians think the same way, right? They think that Most of the good that's done in the world happens outside of the church. And that is a very alarming statistic for us as the people of God. Now, although this perception is wrong, I mean, if you take any look at church history, I mean, almost every institution of higher learning was started by Christians. Almost every charitable organization that does any lasting good in this world was founded on Christian principles, and Christians have been at the forefront, right? But there's something about the way that Christians have retreated from the world in many ways that have left our faith um, needing to ask some serious questions about how we approach the Christian life. This is how they begin to get their hands on the problem, and I think it will hit home for us. They say, part of the problem is that too many in the Christian community have bought into unbiblical notions about what it means to live a good life. So it doesn't look like to outsiders that we're doing anything special. Rather than living as a countercultural community that bears witness to the coming kingdom of God, many of us go with the cultural flow, thoughtlessly consuming the products, ideas, and aspirations stream for us in an unending deluge of retweets and Facebook likes. It's so hard in this screen age to keep our attention focused on anything very long, much less a way of life introduced to Middle Eastern peasants 2,000 years ago. Talk about irrelevance, right? Now, in our affluent culture, that will begin to strike a chord immediately because we know at its core, they're absolutely right, right? Now, this is not a message to make you feel guilty about being affluent Americans, Right? That would be 
absolutely pointless. But this is a message for us to begin to view our position, our power, our influence, our finances as part of God's larger story in the world, right? So what we're going to look at in the book of Nehemiah is how Nehemiah began to advocate for the poor that were in Jerusalem, right? Um, God in his mercy and his kindness is putting his finger on this issue for a whole generation of Christians that are not okay with just attending religious services anymore. I mean, there's a whole new work of the Spirit that's in the world for people that want to make a difference. And what we're going to see is this has been God's plan from the very beginning, even in the book of Nehemiah. This is how the birth of Christianity went from 120 in the upper room to over 50% of the Roman population being converted to Christianity in just over 300 years because they cared for those that no one else cared for. They provided materially for the poor. They took care of children that were left outside to die with the elements. They cared about those on the margins. Now, if you look at modern approaches to church life, it almost in no way resembles that in America, right? I mean, what we want to do is put on a light show, right? And we're going to put up a banner and we're going to try to get people that look like us and dress like us and see how we can become more relevant. But how you become relevant in God's world and God's book is that you care for those that he cares most about and those are the marginalized and the oppressed. And so we're going to see that in Nehemiah chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me? We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Verse 1. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. That's a key word, brothers. For... There were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax On our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. This is Nehemiah speaking. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations... But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, 
the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that there are times to be silent. That there are times to take inventory. That there are times to pay attention more than just skin and surface deep. I thank you that you love us enough to not let us grow comfortable in our shoes. I thank you that you love us and you love the world so much that you consistently show us your posture and your generosity and your grace and it compels us to want to respond in kind. I pray that you would do that kind of work uh, among us where there is selfishness. I pray that you would root it out where there is a heart to respond. I pray that you would fan it into flame and I pray that you would have mercy on us so that mercy would flow from this place like a river and see our city be different and see the churches that will be planted from this church be different by the grace of God for the sake and the fame of Jesus. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at and we see in this text, you can see in verse 1, we're going, we need to respond to the outcry of injustice. Now, verse 1. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So everywhere there is injustice, there will be an outcry. The question for the people of God is, will we hear that cry? How will we respond when we hear the outcry of injustice? Now, what's going on here is pretty simple. Um, These people were released from other nations around the world. They came back to Jerusalem, and the poor were being oppressed by the rich. The weak were being oppressed by the strong. And the people didn't have enough food to eat because they were having to mortgage off their fields. They were having to sell their sons and daughters as slaves just to have enough food to put on the table. Now, Nehemiah was um, greatly angry, and rightly so. And, And what we have to understand when we begin to look at issues of injustice, most of us, like we think Christianity is always about smiling, and it's always about putting on a happy face no matter what. But there's time as the people of God that you need to get angry. Right? There's times when you need to look out at the brokenness of the world and say, this absolutely should not be. There should be a time when the people of God listen to the outcry of injustice that they hear and they respond. Now, we're not talking about, you know, some kind of sideline tirade that you might see on a college football sideline somewhere, but we're talking about the inward response of the people of God saying, this is not the way that God has designed the world to work. And in light of that, we will respond. That's the heartbeat of this passage. At its core, God set up this world to live and to flourish and to have life and to have this sense of justice. I mean, but because of sin, we have the 
strong that oppress the weak, the rich that oppress the poor, the young that dismiss the old, races that oppress one another. All of those are marks of brokenness of the world. And, and what the people of God could not see in Nehemiah's time is the same thing that we are capable of is just being so blind to the system that we are involved in that we don't see or hear the cries of injustice. And so Nehemiah lifted up his voice so that they would respond. Now, the reason that this is an outrage is because God had set his people free who were slaves in other nations only to come back into the nation that God had promised to them to be the people of God. But instead of reflecting his light and his glory to the world, they became slaves. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. And I said, and I, and said to them, we, as far as we are able have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. So it's sending the wrong kind of message to the world, right? That the people of God who had received mercy, who had received grace, who had received life from God would now enslave their brothers and sisters. Now, most of them, if you interviewed them on the street, they wouldn't say, hey, I'm not oppressing anyone. I'm just living in the system that goes on inside this world. That's exactly if you interviewed someone on the street. But they didn't understand what was going on, the larger part of God's story, that the, the way that they're meant to live is to reflect God's generosity and his mercy. This is incompatible with the concept of restoration. You can tell a lot about the veracity of an individual's perception of religion and religion in general about how it treats the least of these, how it approaches the vulnerable. How do we view power? God freed this nation, this nation from other nations, only to see people oppressed once again. Now, God himself has always had a special concern for the poor. He's identified himself as the father of the fatherless. In the fabric of ancient Israelite life, he made caring for widows and orphans, and hear this, refugees, a real part of the people of God. This was part of their identity. That everyone who needed protection, that everyone that needed defending would find refuge in Yahweh. Listen to this quote from Scott Souls in his new book, Befriend. It is amazing. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, Yahweh declared that authentic faith fights injustice, liberates the oppressed, relieves burden, feeds the hungry, shelters the poor, and clothes the naked. Moses says that if there was any poor among us, that we should be open-handed and give generously and never begrudgingly. And we should give until the need is met. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes that religion that is true and that God accepts is the kind that looks after the widows and orphans in their distress. Isaiah takes it a step further when he says that we all owe a debt of love to the poor and we are to treat the poor as our own 
flesh and blood. We are to treat the poor as family. That's radically different than the political rhetoric of our day. This is the story of God. This is the story of the whole Bible. Jesus, when he announced his ministry, Luke chapter 4, I came to bring good news to the poor. God has a special concern for the poor. Now, this is where a deep work can take place in our hearts as a church. Compassion flows from seeing those that are oppressed as fellow image bearers of God. But you also have to see them, as Scott Saul says, as family. The greater distance that you can put yourself between yourself and the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed allows you to stay a safe distance. But if you see your face or you see your children's face in the face of the poor, then we respond. Here's here's the gospel motivation for this as a church. We were the poor. We were the naked. We were the oppressed by sin. And Jesus Christ came looking for us and he gave up his life for us on the cross. Now we as the people of God get to respond in like and in kind and show mercy indiscriminately to the world. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. That is the heartbeat of people that care for the poor with compassion that flows from the gospel. This isn't about goody-goodies getting their jollies by doing good deeds for people. This is about the people of God saying, we have received mercy. What else can we do but in kind respond with mercy and with grace? That's the heartbeat of this story. Now, There will always be cries where there is injustice. And there are three logical responses to injustice. The first one is the most dangerous one. And it's the one that we're going to be the most tempted to do today. It is to be sentimentally affected by what's going on. Right? Who does not feel bad about what's going on in Haiti right now? Right? Who doesn't have compassion, right? But James says in the book of James that there's a real danger between having a kind of faith that just flows from our mouth where words are cheap, where we tell the poor to be filled and stay warm and we don't respond by actually giving them food and clothes, right? Um, one um, One of the most powerful illustrations of this comes from the movie Hotel Rwanda, I don't know if you've seen that. Um, It it, it covers the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. And there was a group of people that were suffering. And they made their way into a UN-protected area. And they were just begging for help, begging for someone to save their life. And they found their way into some Western media. And, and, And this is what they did. They said, you have to let the world see. You have to let America see what's going on over here. And this is exactly the climate of America. The the cameraman said, I can put this on the 6 o'clock news and this is what will happen. People will say, oh my God, that is terrible. And they will go on and they will eat their dinner. That's our culture, right? Sentimentally affected, no response. That is the first insufficient response. 
The second response is the self-righteous response. You, to dismiss the cries of injustice, you have to do one of two things. You have to either moralize their suffering and say they are suffering and it's their fault, right? So we can dismiss our hearts because we're hardwired for compassion. So we have to construct moral arguments to say they're at the bottom and it's their fault. The second self-righteous response is to rationalize. If I help, it's not going to make any difference. Or if I help, it's going to be wasted or it's going to be squandered, right? So we rationalize the suffering of other people. This is where the rubber meets the road. People that benefit from the system rarely question the system. People that benefit from the system rarely question the system. People that are oppressed by the system cry out with all that they are. And at the very least, we as the people of God must listen to their cries. But more than that, we have to respond. See, the gospel flips the world upside down. We begin with those at the bottom, not those at the top. Jesus did not come for the healthy, but the sick. He didn't come for the strong, but for the weak. And our approaches to church and our approaches to evangelism almost exclusively focus on how to get middle-class Christians to go from one church to another. And that is anathema in the plan of God. The plan of God is for the people of God to go to those that are on the margins, to go to those that are suffering in the world, and to see the good news brought there. And what's beautiful about this in Nehemiah's leadership is they responded, right? They forgave the debts of those people. They heard and they saw that God had had mercy on them, so they wanted to have mercy on others. All right. Nehemiah is a great example of how to respond The first thing is we have to respond to the outcry of injustice. The second thing that we need to do is recognize that we are stewards. I don't have time to read the entire thing, but in verses 14 through 19, Nehemiah threw a feast and a party at his house because he was the governor of Jerusalem every night. There were 150 people that were gathering around his table. Every night there were um, oxen that were slain. There were sheep that were slain. There were multiple gallons of wine that were flowing from his household. And he had every right as the person that was the governor of Jerusalem to use his power and to use his influence to um, actually gain wealth from the people of the land, but instead of funding that party where there were dignitaries from all over the world that would come in his 12-year reign, he funded it out of his own pocket because he did not want the poor to be oppressed. He didn't want it to afflict them. Now, this series has been about us viewing ourselves as restorers and God making everything new. Now, this is where things have to change for us as a people, the people of God. Nothing is more sacred in American culture, than our finances, right? It is our identity, the clothes that we wear, um, the job that we have, 
If that doesn't work, then we transfer that on to how our children are doing. But in order for us to live out our call as restorers, we have to move from having a merely transactional view of our finances. That I worked for this, I earned this, so I get to do with it whatever the heck I want to do with it, right? That's one view, and that's the American view. The other view is that we view ourselves as stewards. Stewards are people that have received everything from God, and they want to use everything for God. Those are completely different ways of viewing material blessings. Now, we tend to think, and I am an entrepreneur by heart, we tend to think of ourselves as where we are because of our hard work. And we almost totally dismiss God's grace in our lives, His gifting in our lives, the place, the time that we were born, the circumstances in which we were born. Scott Sauls also says this. He says, when he's talking about this mindset, he says, I wonder if it's also a combination of being naive, which I think is true, and arrogant. We can be so naive about the lives of people in whose shoes we have never walked. We can also grow arrogant about our own privilege, power, and wealth, somehow believing that we are who we are and where we are solely on the basis of our own tenacity and dedication and not at all because of the conditions into which we were born. Here's an underappreciated reality about the poor who are often accused of being lazy. Many of the poor give up trying because of a system, a one-legged system into which they were born, a system that will not and in many instances cannot create opportunities for them to move forward. Because the world is set up for people with two legs. Lack of resources, absentee parents, failing schools, and a scarcity of vocational on-ramps make it much easier to quit than to try. 70% of those born into poverty never make it to the middle class. Many children born into poverty are, statistically speaking, 200 times less likely to attend college than my children. College and career are not on the radar. For these children, the chief thing on the radar, whether materially or relationally, is survival. Right? That's true. That's the world that we live in. And if you're quick to dismiss systemic issues, just realize that every system that exists in the world is run by flawed and broken human people. That in no way diminishes individual responsibility. We believe both of those things passionately as a church. But for us to be able to respond, we have to be able to see both things, right? Individual brokenness and broken systems. Both of those things are um, the groundwork that God uses to build his kingdom. A steward is someone that manages the affairs and the resources of someone else. Right? So we all are stewards of the gifts and the resources, the power and the influence that God has given us. Now, see, this is where I think Nehemiah is a great example for us. Like, he didn't feel guilty about the fact that he was loaded. Um, he actually threw a party like that every day 
for 12 or 13 years. He ended up at his own expense. I don't know how much a sheep costs, but over 26,000 sheep, right? Over 4,300 oxen and countless gallons of wine were consumed at his table. He had no problem celebrating and enjoying the goodness of God, but he did it in such a way that brought glory to God and brought other people into his enjoyment of God, right? So you don't need to feel guilty if you're rich here today, right? God wants you to view yourself as but he does want you to think about like primarily the reason that God has given you the material wealth and the gifts and the resources that he's given you is to be a conduit to other people, to be a blessing. It's not so that you can have a fat retirement one day, right? It's so that you can use your gifts, your resources to value the thing that he values and the thing that he values above everything else is people, Right? So we want to be stewards. And here's the thing. Generosity in the plan of God is never wasted. Right? Waste, fraud, and abuse exist in human systems. But in God's economy, he's keeping count of a cup of cold water that you give out in his name. That's the truth about the heartbeat of God. God gives us gifts to use. And then miracle upon all miracles, he actually is going to reward you for it one day. Isn't that amazing grace? That God gives you everything that you have, you use it to bless other people, and then he rewards you for it. That's the kindness and the generosity of God. All right, brings us to our final point. Learning to become an advocate. An advocate is one who speaks up. An advocate is one who acts on behalf of someone who is vulnerable. Using our voice for people's voices that are not heard. Giving and providing hope to those who have lost hope. Becoming people who leverage our power, our possessions, our influence for the sake of other people. Now, in 1 John, Jesus is described as our advocate. He is the one who lives and pleads for us before the Father. He's the one that represents us despite all of our fallenness and despite all of our brokenness and despite all of our demerit. Jesus is a living testimony of what it means to be an advocate. He takes those that are at the bottom and he causes them to be sit in heavenly places, right? That's where we're seated with Christ. It says in Hannah's prayer that he, he takes the needy from the ash heap and he sits them up with princes. That's what happens in the gospel. That's who we are. So because of that, right, the application of this passage is for us to become advocates for other people, to stand up, to speak out against injustice. Advocates act on behalf of other people. So what does it look like to become an advocate? Right? This is where we move from sentimentality to action. First, and this is going to take place on November 6th, you have an opportunity to care for the most vulnerable. Orphans. Right? We want to labor as a church for every orphan to find a home. So many of you sponsor children with compassion. That is being an advocate. There's going to be ways to care for the children in Haiti that we're going to hear about. Right? So many of you open up your homes for foster care. You are caring for the vulnerable. Those of you that have participated in adoption, thank you. What you're doing is near and dear to the heartbeat of God. That is being an advocate. It also means standing up against racism, right? In 
our southern context, and I've lived here about five years, there is a lot of closet racism that takes place in our city, right? And we can either passively listen and silently agree, or we can stand up with our voices and say, that's not the way that God intended the world to be. It also means that we listen to the cries of systemic injustice, whether you are inclined politically to believe so or no or not, you must begin to listen to the people that are suffering or we fall under the same condemnation of the people of Israel. We dismiss the cries of injustice. That's where I want to honor my daughter Hannah, who's in the front row. Hannah is an advocate for people that are hurting for people that are broken. She is a friend. She told me, she didn't know I was preaching on this, and she told me the story this week. And uh, I don't know if I've ever been more proud to be a dad. She said, there's this girl at my school. And everyone hates her. Everyone makes fun of her. Everyone tells her she's an abomination to God. This young lady is a lesbian. And all of the Christians at her school tell her just how messed up she is. So much so that when Hannah shares lunchtime with her, she says, don't you know who I am? Every other Christian is painting a picture and a narrative that God hates this young lady. Now, if there's ever an opportunity to speak about the kindness and the grace of God, who's going to get to speak into her life? It's going to be people like Hannah. And it's, it's an amazing thing as a parent. I mean, Hannah has issues. <laughs> but... It's an amazing thing. She does. Like, I'm not, I'm not up here saying we have a perfect family. I'm not. But I'm going to show honor where honors do. Um, it's amazing to get to learn from your kids, right? It's impossible for me to say everything I can about this topic. I would want to recommend a book by Preston Sprinkle that's called People to be Loved. It manages very well the tension of loving people that are LGBT in their community and the veracity of the scriptures. We believe both of those things. But we also categorically condone hatred in all of its forms. Okay, If we're going to be people that love God, we're going to stand up for those that are oppressed. I'm not sure if they're in here. Aaron and Brittany McDuff are an example of being an advocate. They use their gifts to make a film called Ridge Runners. It's an excellent film. It draws attention to sex trafficking that takes place not just in the red light districts of Europe and Asia, but takes place on the interstates of the southern part of the United States. I would commend this film to you. And I would commend their example because they're using the gifts and skills that God's given them 
to tell a different story. Talk about the reality of the suffering that exists in our world. And I could go on and on. Like, the joy about this is I'm not telling you guys to do something that you don't want to do. You know, this church is heroic in this area. But this, Aaron mentioned this earlier. This is, this is, this is where this has to go from, okay, we believe these things sentimentally and we believe these things in the gospel. We have no shortage of ideas here. Okay? We don't. We do have a shortage of people that say, I will pray, I will plan, I will execute, and I will go. Right? So this is, this is the application of this message. We are looking for very practically in our church calendar, is the time where we make the calendar for the next year. It's the time that we make the budget for the next year. And everything that we've done that's been a success as a church has been member-driven, right? Holly's right here. The Fellowship Sports Academy flows and goes really well because it's owned by our church. But we believe in God in faith that there are more things that he's called us to do. I'd love for us to be able to do three or four large-scale events next year that actually push us into caring for the marginalized and the oppressed in our city. So I'd like a group to form, and I'll speak vision into that team, but where people say, okay, I will plan, I will pray, I will say it's going to cost this much money, and, and then I will be present, and I will build my schedule around executing this, because this is more important than me, right? And if you do that, if a team forms like that, then it gives all of us as a church an on-ramp so that we can do that. And then out of that, we want to see gospel communities come alongside. See, because it's not a success, and I want to redefine the win for us, okay? It's not a success always. There is value in serving food. There is a value in helping clothe people. We must do that. But the goal out of that is to build relationships with real people, right? So for us as a church, it's going to be different for us to learn how do we actually build relationships that go outside of an event. Like having the event is great and it's a good first step, but it's not the win. The win is relationships when you actually get to hear someone's story, right? You get to figure out what is their story of brokenness so that you can begin to be an agent of God's restoration in their life. That's the win for us as a church. And to do that, there must be people that are more gifted than I am to do this. Like if you know anything about me, actually calendaring things and planning things, it's not my strength, but I'm asking for help. So if, if you have any desire to participate, please go sign up. I would love for everyone to sign up for this team because that is what it means to be the church. So let's pause and just do an inventory. Just think very practically in your life. Where might God be calling me to be an advocate? Where is someone suffering? Where is someone oppressed? Where can I be a voice? We can't do everything, but if everybody does something, it makes a huge difference. So I want us to be able to talk about this and pray about this because the, the gospel is this good and our mission is this big, right?
This is not about us carving out our niche and kind of waiting for our ticket to heaven. This is about us being instruments in the kingdom of God because he's had mercy on us through the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you are everything. We forget that. We make you an extra or an add-on. But you are our treasure. I pray that you would use the gifts and the skills and the resources that you've given us to make much of you. I do pray that we would be countercultural in the way that we view this world and countercultural in how we view our resources. I pray that you would birth something here this morning in these moments that would last and make a dent in eternity. Thank you that we get to live as part of your plan and your story. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're...